Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. I want to tell you, uh, Kevin Moffat has won the John Simmons Short Fiction Award, was longlisted for the Frank O'Connor International Short Story Award, and the Believer Book Award. He is a frequent contributor to McSweeney's and his stories and essays have appeared in Tin House, The Harvard Review, The Believer, A Public Space, and The Best American Short Stories, among other places. He has received the Nelson Algren Award, the Pushcart Prize, and a Literature Fellowship from the NEA. His new book is entitled Further Inter Interpretations of Real Life Events. And uh, here at Skylight Books, uh, we often don't judge books by their covers, but usually by the author photographs. That's how I judge my books. Or uh, often we do it by the first sentence, because you know we don't have time to read every book, so we just have to read the first sentence. And I found out, uh, as a fan of short stories that I am, that Kevin is really good at these openers. And um, I would actually even put you up there with my favorites, like Richard Yates and Raymond Carver and Laurie Moore. And check these out. Okay, this is from this is from these books. This book right here, um, from First Marriage. They noticed the odor outside Tucson the day after they got married. Right? That is a wonderful first line. And this one's from The Big Finish. Everyone on the, sh on the ship calls Hayes the Birdman, except for the birds, who call him Ned. It's good. So please welcome Kevin Moffat. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. Uh, I know some came great distances to be here, and I really appreciate it. Um, tonight I'm going to read uh, the title story uh, from the collection. Uh, it's a little bit too long to read all in one chunk, so I'm going to read about the first three-fourths of it, give you a taste. And if you want the rest, you can buy the book, which is available here, consequently. It's brilliant. Um, okay, it's called Further Interpretations of Real-Life Events. After my father retired, he began writing truish stories about fathers and sons. He had tried scuba diving, had tried being a dreams enthusiast, and now he'd come around to this. I was skeptical. I'd been writing my own truish stories about fathers and sons for years. Stories that weren't perfect, of course, but they were mine. Some were published in literary journals, and I'd even received a fan letter from Helen in Vermont, who liked the part in one of my stories where the father made the boy scratch his stepmom's back. Helen in Vermont said she found the story, quote, enjoyable, but kind of, quote, depressing. The scene with the stepmom was an interpretation of an actual event. When I was 10 years old, my mother died. My father and I lived alone for five years until he married Laura, a kind woman with a big laugh. He met her at a dreams conference. I liked her well enough in real life, but not in the story. 
In the story called End of Summer, I resented Laura for marrying my father so soon after my father died, which I had changed to five months. You used to scratch your ma's back all the time, my father says in the final scene. Why don't you ever scratch Laura's? Laura sits next to me, shucking peas into a bucket. The pressure builds. If you don't scratch Laura's back, my father says, you can forget Christmas. So I scratch Laura's back. It sounds silly now, but by the end of the story, Christmas stands in for other things. It isn't just Christmas anymore. The scene was inspired by the time my father and Laura went to Mexico City while I was marauded by bullies and black flies at oboe camp and brought me home a souvenir, a tin handicraft, you guess, a selection of cactus fruit candy, no, a wooden back scratcher with an extended handle for maximum self-gratification. What's worse, Teikiero was embossed on the handle, which I translated at the time to mean, I love me. I was off by one word. Try it, my father said. His tan had a yoki tint and he wore a t-shirt with property of Mexico on the back. It was the sort of shirt you could find anywhere. I hiked my arm over my head and raked the back scratcher north and south along my vertebra. Works, I said. He spent all week searching for something for you, Laura said. He even tried to haggle at the Mercado. It was cute. There isn't much for a boy like you in Mexico, my father said. The man who sold me the back scratcher, though, told me a story. All the men who left to fight during the revolution took their wives with them. They wanted to remember more. I couldn't listen. I tried to. I, I pretended to, nodding and going, hmm, when he said Pancho Villa, and wow, when he said gunfire, and then some story when it was over. I excused myself and sprinted upstairs to my bedroom and slammed my door, snapped that sorry back scratcher over my knee like kindling. A boy like me? You'll never earn a living writing short stories, not if you're any good at that. My mentor, Harry Hodgett, told me that. I must have been doing something right because I had yet to receive a dime for my work. I day labored at the community college teaching prep writing, a class for students without the necessary skills for beginning writing. I also taught prep, prep writing for those without the skills for prep writing. Imagine the most abject students on earth. Kids who, when you ask them to name a verb, stare at you like you just asked them to cluck out a polka with armpit farts. Literary journals paid with contributors' copies and subscriptions, which was pretty nice because when your story was published, you at least knew that everyone else in the issue would read your work. Though, truth be told, I, ne I never did. This was how I came to receive the autumn issue of Vesper. I'd been published in the spring issue. It sat on my coffee table until a few days after its arrival when I returned home to find Carrie on, on my living room sofa reading it. Shh, she said. I just come back from teaching, dispirited as usual, after Chandra Jones in prep prep writing told a classmate to quote, eat my drippings. I didn't say anything, I said. Shh, Carrie said again. And aside, I'd like to have kept Carrie out of this because I haven't really figured out how to write about her. She's tall, with short brown hair and brown eyes, and she wears clothes, and see, I could be describing anybody. Carrie's lovely. Her face is a nest for my dreams. You need distance from your subject matter. You need to approach it with the icy, lucid eye of a surgeon. I also can't write about my mother. 
Whenever I try, I feel like I'm attempting kidney transplants with a can opener and a handful of rubber bands. Amazing, Carrie said, closing the journal. Sad and honest and free of easy meanness. It's like the story was unfolding as I read it. That bit in the motel? Wow. How come you never showed me this? It's a breakthrough. She stood and hugged me. She smelled like bath beads. And I was jealous of the person, whoever it was, who had affected this reaction in her. Carrie, whom I met in Hodgett's class, usually read my stories with barely concealed impatience. Breakthrough, huh? I said casually, desperately. Who wrote it? She leaned in and kissed me. You did. I picked up the journal to make sure it wasn't the spring issue which featured the longest day of the year, part two of my summer trilogy. It's about a boy and his father. I know, I know. Driving home and arguing about the record player the father refuses to buy the boy, even though the boy totally needs it, since this current one ruined two of his Yes albums, including the impossible to find time in a word and boom, they hit a deer. The stakes suddenly shift. I turn to the contributor's notes. Frederick Moxley is a retired statistics professor living in Vero Beach, Florida. In his spare time, he is a dreams enthusiast. This is his first published story. My dad, I screamed. He stole my name and turned me into a dreams enthusiast. Your dad wrote this and turned me into a goddamn dreams enthusiast. Everyone will think I've gone soft and stupid. I don't think anyone really reads this journal, Carrie said. No offense. And isn't he Frederick Moxley, too? Fred. He goes by Fred. I go by Frederick. Ever since third grade, when there were two Freds in my class. I flipped the pages, found the story, mile zero, and read the first sentence. As a boy, I always dreamed of flight. That makes two of us, I thought. To the circus. To Tibet. To live with a nice family of Moonies. I felt tendrils of bile beanstalking up my throat. What's he trying to do? Read it, Carrie said. I think he makes it clear what he's trying to do. If the story was awful, I could have easily endured it. I realize now. I could have called him and said, if he insists on writing his elderly squibs, please use a pseudonym. Let the Moxley interested in truth and beauty publish under his real name. But the story wasn't awful, not by a long shot. Yes, it broke two of Harry Hodgett's six laws of story writing. Never dramatize a dream, never use one, more than one exclamation point per story, but he managed some genuine insight. Also, he fictionalized real life events in surprising ways. I recognize one particular detail from after mom died. We moved the following year because my father never liked our house's floor plan. That's what I'd thought at least. Too cramped, he always said. Wherever you turned, a wall or closet blocked your path. In the story, though, the characters move because the father can't disassociate the house from his wife. Her presence is everywhere. In the bedroom, the bathroom, in the silverware pattern, the flowering jacaranda in the backyard. She used to trim purple blooms from the tree and scatter them around the house, he wrote, on bookshelves, on the dining room table. It seemed a perfectly attuned response to the natural world, a way of inviting the outside inside. I remembered those blooms. I remembered how the house smelled with her inside it, though I couldn't really name the smell. I recalled her presence, vast, ineffable thing. I finished reading in the bathtub. I was no longer angry. I was a little jealous. Mostly, I was sad. 
The story, which showed father and son failing to connect again and again, ends in a motel room in Big Pine Key, the father watching a cop show on TV while the boy sleeps. He's having a bad dream. The father can tell by the way his face winces and frowns. The father lies down next to him, hesitant to wake him up, and tries to imagine what he's dreaming about. Don't wake up, the father tells him. Nothing in your sleep can hurt you. The boy was probably dreaming of a helicopter losing altitude. It was a recurring nightmare of, mon, of mine after mom died. I'd be cutting through the sky, past my house, past the hospital, then suddenly the control panel would start beeping and the helicopter spins down, down. My body fills with air as I yank the joystick. The noise is the worst, like a monster oncoming bee. My head buzzes long after I wake up, shower, and sit down to breakfast. My father, who's just begun enthusing about dreams, a hobby that even then I found ridiculous, asks what I dream about. Well, I say, between spoonfuls of cereal, I'm in a blue, no, a golden suit, and all of a sudden I'm swimming in an enormous fishbowl in a pet store filled with eager customers. And the thing is, they all look like you. The other thing is, I love it. I want to stay in the fishbowl forever. Any idea what that means? Finish your breakfast, he says, his eyes downcast. I'd like to add a part where I say, just kidding, and then tell him my dream. He could, tell, he could decide it's about anxiety or fear. I would walk around, I, or even better, he could just backhand me. I could walk around with a handprint on my face. It could go from red to purple to brownish blue, poetic-like. Instead, though, we sulked. It happened again and again until mornings grew as joyless and choreographed as the interactions of people who worked among deafening machines. In the bathroom, I dried myself off and wrapped a towel around my waist. I found Carrie in the kitchen eating oyster crackers. So, she said, her expression was so beseeching, such a lidless, empty jug. I tossed the journal onto the table. Awful, I said, sentimental, boring. I don't know. Maybe I'm just biased against bad writing. And maybe, she said, you're just jealous of good writing. She just had cr crumbs from her blouse. I know it's good. You know it's good. You aren't going anywhere till you admit that. And where am I trying to go? I asked. She regarded me with a look that I recalled from Hodgett's class. Bemused amusement. The first day while Hodgett asked each of us to name our favorite book, then explain why we were wrong, I was daydreaming about this girl in a white v-neck, reading my work and timidly approaching me afterward to ask, what did the father's broken watch represent? And me saying, futility or despair, and uh, then maybe kissing her. She turned out, though, to be the toughest reader in class, far tougher than Hodgett, who was usually content to make vague pronouncements about patterning and the octane of the epiphany. <laughs> Carrie was cold and smart and meticulous. She crawled inside your story with a flashlight and blew out all your candles. She said of one of my early pieces, on what planet do people actually talk to each other like this? And does this character do anything but shuck peas? I knew she was right about my father's story, but I didn't want to talk about it anymore. So I unfastened my towel and I let it drop to the floor. Uh-oh, I said. What do you think of this plot device? She looked me at me up, down, up. We're not doing anything until you admit your father wrote a good story. Good? What's that even mean? Like, can it fetch and speak and sit? 
Good, Carrie repeated. It's executed as vigorously as it's conceived. It isn't false or pretentious. It doesn't jerk the reader around to no effect. It lives by its own logic. It's poignant, it's poignant without trying too hard. I looked down at my naked torso. At some point during her litany, I seemed to have developed an erection. In that case, I said, I guess he wrote one good story. Do I have to be happy about it? Now I want you to call him and tell him how much you liked it. I picked up the towel and refastened it and started toward the living room. I'm just joking, she said. You can call him later. Dejected, I followed Carrie to my room. She won. She always won. I didn't even feel like having sex anymore. My room smelled like the bottom of a pond, like a turtle's moistly rotting cavity. She lay on my bed, still talking about my father's story. I love that little boy in the motel room, she said, kissing me, taking off her shirt. I love how he's still frowning in his sleep. I never called my father, though I told Carrie I did. I said, I called and congratulated him. What's his next project, she asked. Project? As if he was a famous architect or something. I said he's considering a number of projects, each project more poignant without trying too hard than the project before it. He phoned a week later, and I was reading my students' paragraphs, feeling my soul wither with each word. The paragraphs were in response to a prompt, where do you go to be alone? All the students except one went to their room to be alone. The exception was Daryl Ellington, who went to his ROM. You, you sound busy, my father said. I'm just getting some work done, I said. We exchanged postcard versions of the last few weeks. I'm fine, Carrie's fine, he's fine, Laura's fine. I decided I would let him bring up the journal himself. Been writing, he said. Here and there, I said. Some days it comes, some days it doesn't. I meant me, he said. Then slowly he paddled through a summary of how he'd been writing stories since I sent him one of mine. I'd forgotten this. And of reading dozens of story collections, and then of some dream he had, and then finally of having his story accepted for publication, and two others forthcoming. He sounded chagrined by the whole thing. I told him to publish it as Seth Moxley, but lines must have gotten crossed, he said. Anyway, I'll just put a copy in the mail today. If you get a chance to read it, I'd love to hear what you think. What happened to scuba diving, I asked. I still dive. Laura and I are going down to the Pentacamp next week. Right, but writing's not some hobby you just dabble in, Dad. It's not like scuba diving. I didn't say it was. You're the one who brought up diving. He inhaled deeply. Why do you always do this? Do what? Make everything so damn difficult. I had to drink two glasses of wine before I called just to relax. You were such an easygoing kid, you know that? Your mom used to call you Placido. I'd wake up panicked in the middle of the night and run to check on you because you didn't make any noise. Maybe she was talking about the opera singer, I said. Pause, a silent upgrinding of gears. You don't remember much about your mother, do you? A few things, I said. Her voice? Not really. She had a terrific voice. I didn't listen to much after that, not because I'd already heard it, though I had. I wanted to collect a few things I remembered about her, instead of listening to his version again. Not facts or adjectives or secondhand details, but qualities. Spliced together images I could summon without words. Her reaching without looking to take my hand in the street. The pockmarks on her wrist from the pins inserted when she broke her arm. Her laughing, her crying, her warmth muted, her gone. 
dissolving room by room from our house. I'd never been able to write about her, not expressly. Whenever I tried, she emerged all white-robed and beatific, floating around, dispensing wisdom, laying doomed hands on me and everyone. Writing about her was in perfect remembering. It felt like a second death. I was far happier writing about fathers making sons help drag a deer to the roadside and saying, look into them fogged up eyes. Now that's death, boy. She always had big plans for you, my father was saying. It was something he often said. I never asked him to be more specific. It occurs to me that I'm breaking two of Harry Hodge's laws here. Never write about writing and never dramatize phone conversations. Put characters in the same room, he always said. See what they do when they can't hang up. We'd love to see Carrie again, my father said after a while. Any chance she'll be home for Christmas? Christmas was two months away. We'll try, I told him. After hanging up, I returned to my students' paragraphs, happy to marinate for a while in their simple insight. My room is a special place, Monica Mendez wrote. Everywhere around me are shelves of my memory things. November was a smear. Morning after morning, I tried writing, but instead played Etch-A-Sketch for two hours. I wrote a sentence. I waited. I stood up and walked around thinking about the sentence. I leaned over the kitchen sink and ate an entire sleeve of graham crackers. I sat at my desk and stared at the sentence. I deleted and deleted it and wrote a different sentence. I returned to the kitchen and ate a handful of baby carrots. I began wondering about the carrots, so I dialed the toll-free number on the bag and spoke to a woman in Bakersfield, California. I would like to know where baby carrots come from, I said. Would you like the long version or the short version, the woman asked. For the first time in days, I felt adequately tended to. Both, I said. <laughs> the short version, baby carrots are adult carrots cut into smaller pieces. I returned to my desk, deleted my last sentence, and typed, babies are adults cut into smaller pieces. I liked this. I knew it would make an outstanding story, one that would win trophies and change the way people thought about fathers and sons. If only I could find another 300 or so sentences to follow it. But where were they? A few weeks after my father sent me his first story, I received the winter issue of the Longboat Quarterly with a note, your father really wants to hear back from you about a story. He thinks you hated it. You didn't hate it, did you? XO, Laura. No, Laura, I didn't. And I probably wouldn't hate this one, though I couldn't read past the title, Blue Angels, without succumbing to the urge to sidearm the journal under my sofa. It took four tries. I already knew what the story was about. Later, I sat next to Carrie on the sofa when she read it. Have you ever watched someone read a story? Their expression is dim and tentative at the beginning, alternately surprised and bewildered during the middle, and serene at the end. At least Carrie's was then. Well, she said when she was done, how should we proceed? Don't tell me. Just punch me in the abdomen hard. I pulled up my shirt and closed my eyes and waited. I heard Carrie close the journal, then felt it lightly smack against my stomach. I read the story in the tub. Suffice it to say, it wasn't what I expected. As a kid, I was obsessed with fighter planes, tomcats, super hornets, anything with wings and missiles. I thought the story was going to be about my father taking me to see the Blue Angels, the U.S. Navy's flight team. It wouldn't have been much of a story. Miserable heat, planes doing stunts, me in the autograph line for an hour, getting sunburned and falling asleep staring at five jets on a poster as we drove home. 
The story is about a widowed father drinking too much and deciding he needs to clean the house. He goes from room to room dusting, scrubbing floors, throwing things away. The Blue Angels are a trio of antique porcelain dolls my mother held on to from childhood. The man throws them away, then regrets it as soon as he hears the garbage truck driving off. The story ends with father and son at the dump, staring across vast hillocks of trash, paralyzed. I remembered the dump. Hot syrup stench, blizzard of birds overhead. He told me it was important to see where our trash ended up. When I finished, I was sad again, nostalgic and wanting to call my father, which I did after drying off. Carrie sat next to me on the sofa with her legs over mine. What are you doing, she asked as I dialed the number. I waited, I, waited, I listened to his answer machine, machine greeting. Fred and Laura can't believe we missed your call and then hung up. Have I ever told you about the time I saw the Blue Angels, I asked Carrie. I don't think so. Well, get ready, I said. I quit writing for a few weeks and went out into the world. I visited the airport, the beach, a fish camp, a cemetery, a sinkhole. I collected evidence, listened, tried to see past my impatience to the blood-radiant heart of things. I saw a man towing a woman on the handlebars of a beach cruiser. They were wearing sunglasses. They were poor. They were in love. I heard one woman say to another, everyone has a distinct scent except me. Smell me. I don't have any scent. At the cemetery where my mother was buried, I came upon an old man lying very still on the ground in front of a headstone. When I, when I walked by, I read the twin inscription, Ruth Goodine, 1920-1999, Charles Goodine, 1923, blank. Don't mind me, the man said as I passed. At my desk, I struggled to make sense of this. I imagined what happened before and after, what may, moment made other moments impossible. He'd come to the cemetery to practice for eternity. I could still picture him lying there in his gray suit, but the before and the after were still murky. Before he'd been on a bus, or in a car, or a taxi. Afterward, he would definitely go to the supermarket to buy lunch meat. Anything worth saying, Haja used to declare, is unsayable. That's why we tell stories. I returned to the cemetery. I walked from one end to the other, from the granite cenotaphs to the unmarked wooden headstones. Then I walked into the mausoleum and found my mother's placard, second from the bottom. I had to kneel down to see it. Another of Hodgett's six laws. Never dramatize a funeral or a trip to the cemetery. Too melodramatic, too obvious. I sat against something called the serenity wall and watched visitors mill in and out. They looked more inconvenienced than sad. My father and I used to come here, but at some point we quit. Afterward, we'd go to a diner, and I, he would say, order anything you want, anything. And I would order what I always ordered. A woman with a camera asked if I could take her picture in front of her grandmother's placard, and I said, one, two, three, smile, and snapped her picture. When the woman left, I said some things to my mom, all melodramatic, all obvious. In the months before she died, she talked about death like it was a long trip she was taking. She would watch over me, she said, if they let her. I'm going to miss you, she said, which hadn't seemed strange until now. Sometimes I hoped she was watching me, but usually it was too terrible to imagine. Here I am, I told the placard. I don't know why. It felt good, so I said it again. My father published two more stories in November, both about a man whose wife is dying of cancer. 
He had a weakness for depicting dreams, long, overtly symbolic dreams, and I found that the stories themselves read like dreams. I suffered them like dreams, and after a while I forgot I was reading. Like my high school band teacher used to tell me, your goal is to stop seeing the notes. This never happened to me. Every note was a seed I had to swallow, but now I saw what he meant. Toward the end of the month, I was sick for a week. I canceled my class and I lay in bed, frantic with half dreams. Carrie appeared, disappeared, reappeared. I picked up my father's stories at random and reread paragraphs out of order. I looked for repeated words, recurring details. One particular sentence called to me from under the light. That fall, the trees stingily held on to their leaves. In my delirium, the sentence seemed to solve everything. I memorized it. I chanted it. it. I was the tree holding on to its leaves, but I couldn't let go because if I did, I wouldn't have any more leaves. My father was waiting with a rake because that was his job, but I was being too stingy. And weren't trees a lot like people? I got better. The morning I returned to class, Jacob Harvin from prep writing set a bag of Cheetos on my desk. The machine gave me two by accident, he said. I thanked him and began talking about subject-verb agreement. Out of the corner of my eye, I kept peeking at the orange Cheetos bag and feeling this dreadful gratitude. Someone tell me the subject in this sentence, I said writing on the board. The trees of Florida hold on to their leaves. Terry Anal raised her hand and said, You crying, Mr. Moxley? No, Terry, I said. I'm allergic to things. Looks like you're crying, she said. You need a moment? The word moment did it. I let go. I wept in, wept in front of the class while they looked on horrified, bored, amused, sympathetic. It's just, that was so nice, I explained. Late in the week, my father called and told me I was, he, to, uh, late in the week, my father called and I told him I was almost done with one of his stories. It's good so far, I said. Carrie suggested I quit writing for a while, unaware that I already had. I got drunk and broke my glasses. Someone wrote Roach with indelible marker on the hood of my car. One day I visited Harry Hodgett in his office. I walked to campus with a bag bottle of Chivas Regal, his favorite, practicing what I'd say. Hodgett was an intimidating figure. He enjoyed playing games with you. His door was open, but the only sign of him was an empty mug next to a student's story. I leaned over to see S-B-N-I written in the margin in Hodgett's telltale blue pen. It stood for sad, but not interesting. Then I sat down. The office had the warm, stale smell of old books. Framed pictures of Hodgett and various well-known degenerates hung on the wall. This ain't the petting zoo, Hodgett said on his way in. He was wearing sweatpants and an Everlast t-shirt with frayed cut-off sleeves. Who are you? Hodgett was playing one of his games. He knew exactly who I was. It's me, I said playing along, Moxley. He sat down with a grunt. He looked beat up, baffled, winded, which meant he was in the early days of one of his sober sprees. Oh yeah, Moxley, sure. Didn't recognize you without the... You know, hat, I tried. He coughed for a while, then lifted his trash can and expectorated into it. So what are you pretending to be today, he asked, which was Hodgett code for, so how are you doing? I hesitated, then answered, bamboo, a nice, inscrutable thing to pretend to be. He closed his eyes and leaned his head back to reveal the livid scar under his chin, which was Hodgett code for, please proceed. 
and I told him all about my father. Knowing Hodgett's predilections, I exaggerated some, of the, some things, made my father sound more abusive. Hodgett's eyes were shut, but I could tell he was listening by the way his face ticked and scowled. He sends the stories out under my name, I said. I haven't written a word in over a month. To my surprise, Hodgett opened his eyes and looked at me as if he'd just awoken and said, My old man once tried to staple gun a dead songbird to my scrotum. He folded his arms across his chest. Just facts, he said, not looking for pity. I remembered reading this exact sentence, staple gun, songbird, scrotum, and then I realized where. That happened to Moser, I said, at the end of your novel, The Hard Road. His dad wants to teach him a lesson about deprivation. That wasn't a novel, chief. That was first-person life. He huffed hoarsely. All this business about literary journals and phone calls and hurt feelings, it's just not compelling. A story needs to sing like a wound. I mean, put your father and son in the same room together. Leave some weapons lying around. It isn't a story, I said. I'm living it. I'm paid to teach students like you how to spoil paper. Look at me, man. I can barely put my head together. His face went through a series of contortions like a ghoul in a mirror. You want my advice, he said? Go talk to the old man. Life ain't an opera. It's more like a series of commercials for things we have no intention of buying. He narrowed his eyes, studying me. His eyes drooped. His mouth had white film at the corners. His nose was netted with burst capillaries. What happened to that young woman anyway, Hodgett asked, the one with the nasty allure. You mean Carrie, my girlfriend? Carrie, yeah. I used to have girlfriends like Carrie. They're fun. He closed his eyes, and with his right hand, he began casually kneading his crotch. She did that story about the burn ward. Carrie doesn't write anymore, I said, trying to break his spell. Shame, Hodgett said. Well, I guess that's how it goes. Talent realizes its limitations and gives up, while incompetence keeps plugging away until it has a book. <laughs> I'd take incompetence over talent in a street fight any day of the week. I picked up the Chivas Regal, body and stood, Chivas Regal bottle and stood to leave. I studied the old man's big, noisy, battered, redneck face. He was still fondling himself. I wanted to say something ruthless to him. I wanted my words to clatter around in his head all day like his words did in mine. Thanks, I said. He nodded, pointed to the bottle. You can leave that anywhere, he said. Thanks. I'm happy to answer questions now that I have a drink of water. I was, I was scared to lean back and get that water. I was thinking about it like the last 10 pages of the reading, <laughs> thinking a lot about it. Any questions? You don't have to have questions. I pretty much answered everything, I feel like, with, with what I read. I'll be in New York uh, on May 4th. And then in San Francisco, and I think that that will do it. Uh, San Francisco in June, and I think that'll do it. What's that? It's something called the Babylon Literacy. Where where is it, Victoria? Okay, somewhere in the city. I'll will I'll go there and I'll tell them to point point it out. Yeah, yeah. So so two more, and then I'm done. I'm. A, what's that? Oh, you know, I do what I can. You know, I've uh, because I've I you know I. I 
I, I feel sort of a natural kinship to the form. You know, I, I, I uh, it, 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 you know, I, I, after the first collection, you know, because you write short stories a lot in, in MFA programs, because that's sort of what you, uh, what you do, what you turn in, and, uh, and after that, I, I, I worked on an Alva for a while, and it just, it, for about a year, and it didn't, didn't quite, it never felt right, I was writing sentences just differently, you know, and then when I went back to this book, started this collection, it was just this huge breath of relief, you know, so it, it was, it, it, uh, I feel like writing should be fun, and, and, and writing short stories to me is, is uh, the closest I can get to it. So, yeah. After I abandon this one that I'm working on now, I will. Yeah, and then I'll be done. And then I'll, yeah, I'll come to terms with it. I'm not quite, I'm still pretending. Yeah, still sort of, you know, pretending in my lair. Yeah. <laughs> Another two years. When I'm, when I'm, yeah, when I'm 40, I will. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, you back in the back row, sir. Um, I like the way that the six laws, I guess, kind of structure the story, and kind of through, and then you pay off when things come together. Um, I guess how much thought do you put into things like that, as far as structuring the story? Um, does that come secondary or yeah, you know, the structure on that story did come secondary. You know, the, the story I wrote in a response to a reading I saw here, uh, a friend of mine had a story uh, that he was reading, and it was a story about writing. He was a, he was a classmate of mine in grad school, and he, and he read it here, and I, and I came away from the reading um, uh, not exactly uh, angry, but, uh, but just sort of with, with the idea that, like, I'd like to do something like that, you know, like the feeling that, you know, he didn't quite get it right. And it was it was a story about writing and feeling like a story about writing, studying it, and 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 that's sort of what I started with. Just the feeling of like I want to sort of write a story about writing because that's like the, you know, of those sort of like laws you, laws you hear about writing. Like don't write about writing. You know, write about you know make your character a potter and sort of like impart all that stuff to them. So that's what I started with. And the laws came came into it very very early and so I, I saw that and was happy to kind of have that as a gift but the structure um, really um, manifests itself like as I was going so I, I see those things as a gift but but I, I didn't go into it knowing those those laws I, I, uh, I had the one law never write about writing and then I I have a few very formative writing professors who gave me the never dramatized phone conversations, the dreams. I have like 20 more that I could have put in there, but I stuck with six because I thought it'd get out of hand. But So I wasn't conscious in that story at all about the, about the structure, but it, it kind of came as I was working on it, which I was really thankful for because it, it, was, it, it promised to be a really long story because I had a, I had a lot of, I, I just sort of like went far out in the story, kind of far out to sea, and I didn't know how I was going to get back. So those laws were, were helpful because I had sort of six notes to hit that I saw. Yeah. Hey, way back there. Yes, Bori. Hello. <laughs> I'm not, yeah, the, the order came way at the end. I mean, I, I, for this collection, I, I think there are, count how many stories are in here, eight or nine? What is it, one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, there are nine stories in there. And I had about 12 that I, that I could have used, and so I just, I, I, I had no idea about ordering or, or structuring, but I, I think way less about that than I should. Like, I don't have, um, I, you know, one of the stories in there I wrote, and I thought, oh, I could write sort of, 
four or five more stories set in this world, and I could, you know, link it as a. But I, I uh, very quickly that fell apart, and so all the stories are just um, like, you know, uh, only only linked by voice, I think, or, or some kind of, they're, they're, but they're very much disparate, you know, there's, you know, all sorts of different protagonists, all sorts of different um, landscapes, all, it's very much uh, a mixed bag, um, so I thought a lot about it after I'd put it together, you know, and like kind of dropped off stories that seemed way, way, uh, you know, out there, but yeah, I, I, I didn't, I didn't put a whole lot of thought into, into, uh, into into what we're I just like put all the stories I was most excited about in, into the book. Yeah. It's hard. It's a, it's a, it's hard, and I worried about it. I got lucky in that like the, somebody was excited enough about the book to publish it. Harper Collins was, you know. But the uh, I was I, I I didn't have super high hopes for it when I when I put it together because like the novel and stories or the you know the stories that are all um, sort of like set in the same world. I mean, it's very easy to pitch that. It, it, it's harder to pitch a book like this, and I, I just th thankfully have an agent who was who was uh, flexible enough to kind of like to to see what I saw and to and to, and to uh, get behind it in that way but yeah I was I didn't have super high hopes you know like I was you know because I I went into it without without any I think people are very kind of smart going to some of the you know some short story writers and that they sort of like again they, they the novel and stories are the stories that are kind of are dipping from the same fountain but yeah I, I I don't know how to do it but I just got I feel just like I got lucky you know more than anything yeah grandly lucky Yes, you sir. One story at a time. That's all I can do. That's all I can do. One story at a time. Absolutely. And and uh, any more than that, and I and I yeah, I feel like I'm like cheating on on whatever project I'm working on. I feel guilty. So it's impossible to. I can't have like four four stories at any given time. I have to, I'm I have a one track mind more than anything. So yeah, it's it's usually one story at a time. Yes. I'm a Claremont-based author. Yeah, I'm an inland. I'm an LA County-based author. Yes, yes. I'm a Claremont-based. What's that? Can I say that? Can I? But can I say extended LA Metro? Yeah, <laughs> that's gonna be my tagline. Extended LA Metro. Yeah. I feel no. I don't feel influenced by either. I feel like wayward. Yeah, I feel influenced by like you know dead people. So yeah, more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. I feel I feel removed from it in a way. Yeah, just because I'm you know 45 minutes away. You know, and I and I you know I know there are great literary series here that I've that I've read in and gone to, and you know you've got great independent bookstores in LA, and 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 it is it does feel small, but I do feel yeah I feel totally removed from it. You know, in a, in a way because I'm living in Claremont, I'm also teaching even further away in San Bernardino, you know, so I'm kind of like, 
Yeah, I might as well be in like, you know, like Reno, you know, like, yeah. Tucson, there you go. Yeah, so, so I, I, you know, I feel influenced from it only insofar as like the, the, uh, just sort of a general sort of geographic mode and maybe it, when I move you know like in, when I lived in Florida I never wrote stories set in Florida you know, I lived there you know I grew up there and and went to school there and so so maybe when I move in in three months I, I will uh, I'll start writing some Southern California or Inland Empire more likely stories yeah yeah <laughs> more likely Inland Empire you know I feel like that's underrepresented LA's got its you know it's hard-boiled writers. I mean, I mean, we need a, like a Rancho Cucamonga <laughs> writer, right? Don't we? We need a Rancho Cucamonga writer, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dead authors? Oh, you know, like I, I, you know, as far as the short story writers, I, mean, I start with a lot of my students are here tonight, so I, I've, I'm, I'm always like banging hard on the drum of Flannery O'Connor. She's one of my favorites, and. Uh, yeah, Donald Barthelme, you know, it's a bunch. The shelves are filled with them over here. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll grab you some books if you want to before we're done. I'll, I'll get you three if you'd like, but yeah, a bunch, yeah. So all those, all those, yeah. yeah. Some LA writers you want? Yeah. So the Chandlers and the, and the various others, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I like Ron Carlson. Oh, Ron Carlson, yeah, yeah. He's a, he's a, well, he's a Irvine, right? He's a... Mm-hmm. Yeah. As as do I. Yeah, definitely. Ron Carlson's a good one. Yeah. Okay, one more. This is it. This is the last. Make it good, Chris. Yeah, make it good. Yeah. in terms of like the humor that you find in your stories, do you think that humor came about more organically? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah. I feel like in the first book, the permavisitors, like it came not so inorganically, but as like a fear of like boring the reader for more than one paragraph. So like, put something that like seemed funny to me in a paragraph, and like at least you know if there's nothing you know pithy, there's at least something witty, you know, like in the paragraph. And I'm I'm trying more and more to use it in a way that seems natural. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't seem like such a like an insertion of a of a phrase or a sentence that I find you know, like, like, uh, just, just funny to myself. So it's, it's an ongoing process. You know, I feel like this book is maybe a more, uh, uh, a better representation of, of what I want to do with, with humor and stories, sort of like, like use it to undercut some of the sentimentality or use the sentimentality to undercut some of the humor and, and kind of work both ways. But I feel like it's still an ongoing process. You know, it's, it's, uh, um, so I, I think it's more and more coming, Maybe early on it came along more organically, but it was a more of a of a, a reflexive action. And now I'm having to re sort of like rethink that reflex. So it's coming along maybe less naturally, but more more organically to to whatever I'm working on. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. So I'm 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 definitely I think about it. Is this necessary? Is this right? Is this is this just because you're impatient with a paragraph you just wrote? And yeah. So I, it's it's it's. It, so it's coming along. It's it's still coming along. Yeah. Right, right. Like waiting. Yeah, waiting. <laughs> Silences are important. Yeah, I agree. I agree. 
Well, uh, thanks everybody for coming. I appreciate it. And if, yeah. yeah. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.